We actually have some breaking news. AP has called the race for Brandon Johnson. The Associated Press has projected Brandon Johnson is the next mayor of the city of Chicago. So I got chills to think about the fact that just a few months ago, no one really knew who Brandon Johnson was. He talked about polling at 2.3%. And to go from that to be the mayor of one of the largest cities in the country, uh, one of the most complex cities in the world, is no small task. I am, um, I got chills. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much, please, thank you. Please be seated. I am truly humbled and honored to stand before you as the 57th mayor of the greatest city in the world. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the award-winning Newsbeat podcast, where we meld the realms of hard-hitting independent journalism, music, and often original hip-hop lyrics to amplify the most pressing yet underreported social justice issues of our day. I'm the show's audio editor, co-producer, and host, Manny Faces. Now, before we dive into today's episode, I have a little request. If you're listening on the web, or maybe you came from our free Substack, and you can spare a few seconds, make sure you're subscribed to Newsbeat on your favorite podcast platform, and leave a rating and review. I know we podcasters sound like a broken record, but this is seriously one of the best ways to help support the genre-bending work that we do. We're independent. We pay the artists who contribute to our episodes, and we don't ask for a penny from our audience. So help us spread the word and hold the political establishment, corporate elites, and mainstream media accountable. You can also join the fight by subscribing to our free newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com. There you'll find more in-depth coverage of each episode and some bonus content. And we thank you so much for this support. Now, let's get down to business. Today, we're taking you to the Windy City where progressive leadership has taken the reins after a surprising election season. The incumbent, Lori Lightfoot, failed to advance to a runoff, which was quite a blow, considering she won all 50 wards in 2019, securing her historic victory. In the first round of voting this March, Lightfoot was surpassed by Paul Vallis, the former CEO of Chicago Public Schools, a classic neoliberal, and Brandon Johnson, a former teacher, union organizer, and insurgent progressive challenger who secured 21% of the vote. A month later, Johnson emerged victorious, propelled by his ability to cut through the usual, quote, law and order messaging that's dominated big city elections for decades, including in Chicago. He garnered support from grassroots organizations, independent political groups, and organized labor, chiefly the influential Chicago Teachers Union. Johnson's win is a significant blow to the establishment and has the potential to disrupt the political landscape. His supporters don't view him as a messiah sent to dismantle the wall between corporate power and the working-class citizens of Chicago. Instead, they see him as a partner in a burgeoning movement that aims to push the city forward. But this episode is not just about a major progressive victory in one of America's largest cities. It's also a story about how a historic union struggle, specifically the audacious 2012 Chicago Teachers Union strike, laid the foundation for Johnson's remarkable victory 11 years later. In 2012, hundreds of educators took to the streets to fight against then-Mayor Rahm Emanuel's privatization regime. 
Not only did the uprising succeed in securing concessions, but it also served as an inspiration for teachers' struggles across the nation. In Chicago, it ignited a wave of grassroots activism and led to the formation of independent political organizations like United Working Families, which played a crucial role in powering Johnson to his mayoral victory in April. Johnson himself, a social studies teacher at the time, emerged as a prominent figure in that strike, which played a significant part in his political awakening. So, helping us tell the story of how a seemingly unknown political figure rose to the occasion to take down the Democratic establishment are Andrea Ortiz, an executive committee member of Union Working Families and the director of organizing for the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council, a nonprofit organization that she took leave from to work on the Johnson campaign. We also hear from Crystal Gardner, the associate political director for United Working Families and the regional field director for the West Side of Brandon Johnson's campaign. And also Jackson Potter, vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union and longtime public school educator. Now, for full transparency, after we conducted our interviews, Johnson named Ortiz and Potter to his transition committee. Okay, enough of me. This is Building a Movement, Chicago's Grassroots Mayoral Victory. I think for me, being born and raised on the Southwest Side, my alderman growing up was the longest standing alderman in city council as of yesterday. Alderman Ed Burke, who was in power for 54 years. And also like the other aldermen on the Southwest side, just like history of like corruption, disinvestment, when a lot of Latin community members, immigrants moved into the Southwest side, we saw white flight happen in our communities and like all the white folks, white immigrants that were living there left and moved closer to the outskirts of the city and moved towards the suburbs. So when a lot of Latin immigrants moved into the Southwest side of Chicago, the resources left along with the white immigrants. We saw closings of a lot of businesses, recreational spaces like bowling alleys, movie theaters that my parents met in when they first came to Chicago. Uh, just like really important resources that our communities needed. But growing up, it just felt very normalized going to a school where we didn't have obviously like, like a lot of public education around the country, like not updated books just like lack of resources and the school's always asking for families to pay for things when we already had so little. So it wasn't until the 2012 large CTU teacher strike, Chicago Teachers Union teacher strike, that really radicalized me because up until then, I really was not surrounded by, or maybe I was like shielded or very like ignorant of things that were happening, of any pushback against the current system. And it was the first time I actually saw my teachers speaking out against injustices and like speaking out for resources that they wanted to see for me and for my classmates. So that was really like the crystallizing moment for me, aside from like growing up with like undocumented parents and like that fear of like the police and ICE it was really like that. It's like, oh, we do have power in people power and we are able to like shift and push against these narratives. Today, the Chicago Teachers Union filed a 10 day notice with the Illinois Education Labor Relations Board indicating 
that more than 26,000 public school teachers, clinicians, and paraprofessionals may go on strike in coming days. Should CTU members call for a work stoppage, this will be the first teacher strike in Chicago since 1987. It's a difficult decision for all of us to make, but this is the only way to get the board's attention and show them that we are serious about getting a fair contract, which will give our students the resources they deserve. I actually was raised in politics. My parents were public servants, but also community political organizers. My father, Joseph Gardner, well, my parents, they both met working at Rainbow Push. My father actually worked on Harold Washington's campaign as an organizer. He organized over here on the West Side. So I approached this awesome job with pride. Pride in my community. Pride in the ability of my community to rouse up as though they had been a sleeping giant and to recognize that there is a responsibility that they have that they cannot shirk. Nobody else is going to shoulder that burden. I believe in the powers of redemption, and I simply cannot believe in the God I worship that he would permit us to sit on this earth for 400 years, or rather in this country for 400 years, and suffer the indignities which we have suffered piled time after time high after high and so heavy, it has almost broken the backs of one of the most powerful people in this world. I can't believe there is no redemption, but that redemption is not gonna come out in hatred. It's gonna come out in positive attitude toward our fellow man. The 83 campaign, he also was highly focused on public housing residents and organizing them. I was really radicalized in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. And I said, I, have, I haven't done enough. I haven't used my relationships and my voice enough. Before 2020, I, I was at work, uh, working on the West Side for a residential treatment facility. And my coworkers, they wanted to form a union. And this was in 2017. And for me, unions were like a secret society. Like I wasn't really aware of the dynamics of what they present and what they bring to working class folks. Once my colleagues had brought the union to us and we were having meetings and I was becoming informed, that's when I, I was really activated in the labor movement was in 2017 at my workplace, which was on the West Side where we were doing amazing work and um, working with youth with uh, high acute behavioral challenges. And uh, we were getting paid $13 an hour and I had a master's degree. You know, so once I was kind of informed and educated on what the union brings to workers, I, I was completely activated. I never expected to be here doing what my father did 40 years ago. And, and kind of rewriting history, but also creating a new narrative that is rooted in people power and progressive policies that will serve the many as opposed to the few. Another candidate is jumping into the race for Chicago mayor. Today, Cook County Board Commissioner Brandon Johnson made it official and launched his campaign. Johnson already has the support of the Chicago Teachers Union and several progressive political organizations.
the movement is what got Brandon to city council, along with at least nine other city council members that we call alder, alder men, but we alder women, alder men. All of that presents kind of like a paradigm shift in the way the city will be run from the top floor. So yes, it is a coalition of individuals and organizations and labor unions that have come together and organized. Like we're not all just kind of siloed doing our own thing. We're actually coming to the table, actively saying, okay, this brother here is who we want to be the face of what we are trying to do, right? The face of change in this very moment. Chicago, how the heck are you? <laughs> you know, they said this would never happen. So, you know, if they didn't know, now they know. We don't win a lot. And that's the, like, it, <laughs> it's just like, we messed around and found out <laughs> like, but really it's like, we don't win a lot. And I think that a lot of folks just have been really tired for a very long time. We've been very angry and we've been carrying a lot of, like we've been mourning for a long time. And I feel that the glass was kind of like, overflow during the pandemic like we lost so many of our loved ones our neighbors they use pandemic rescue funds to pay the police to raise the bridges to corral our young people they disinvested and like took money away from our schools they did everything but help us the victory of Brandon Johnson is not the victory of Brandon Johnson, but the victory of like years of organizing in Chicago, the fight for treatment, not trauma, which calls to reopen the closed public mental health clinics to establish a non-police response model. The victory of like fighting for equitable schools and like fully funding our black and Latin and immigrant communities, jobs. It, it's been the fight for a long time that's been culminating. What it brings forth is possibility. And I've been referring it to like, we're able to come up for air and breathe. Cause that's been so important. I'm like, we've been mourning for such a long time and it's been so painful. And I don't, like we've all been feeling it. And when we won on election day, it I'm getting emotional now just talking about it. And we're gonna continue organizing because we have activated so many more people and so many more communities that saw the joy that we did this work in and are excited to continue to win and create more flourishing communities that we deserve. Check it out. Check it. When Johnson takes the oath of office tomorrow morning, he will complete a plan set in motion with the teachers union strike more than a decade ago. A rise to power few saw coming, but one 
he may have predicted. Johnson appeared on C-SPAN, telling the audience to focus more on policies and less on politicians. Make sure that the issues are illuminated and when the candidate emerges, they'll have a platform to run on and not just a party to represent. One day longer, one day stronger. Johnson would find himself on the front lines of a movement that ultimately toppled Chicago's political order. Johnson, who taught in the Chicago public schools, was also a union organizer. But in 2012, he was mainly in the background at marches and news conferences. That is, until Emanuel closed 50 low-enrollment schools to save money the following year. After the strike, the mayor of Chicago was determined to destroy the CTU. And so what did he do? He moved an agenda to not only close down schools, but to close the largest number of schools in our nation's history. Brandon Johnson is hired after he goes through our very first summer organizing institute in 2011, hired as one of our first organizers ever in, in CTU. We never had an organizing department. And he is like truly a leader in that strike. Like you look at photographs or you talk to people, they'll tell you like Brandon was leading marches downtown that, you know, were flooding the financial district and hey, hey, ho, ho, Ramen has got to go. It's like booming as an echo, ricocheting off the skyscrapers. And it's unmistakable, like, Rahm Emanuel is sequestered in his office having to hear this for a week, you know? And it just fills the airwaves. Like, there's there's no way to distort it. It's just a massive expression of resistance that Chicago hadn't seen in decades. I am disappointed that we have come to this point, given that even all the other parties acknowledge how close we are, because this is a strike of choice. And because of how close we are, is a strike that is unnecessary. I have told my team they are available tonight and ready to go back in. We've asked them to postpone this so we can work out the other issues given how close we are. And the issues are not financial. Remind everybody that there are two other issues as it relates to the evaluation and the ability of uh, principals to have the kind of accountability they need to produce the results they need for our children in the schools. In a controversial move last week, the Chicago Board of Education voted to close 50 of the city's public schools. It's the largest mass school closing ever in one U.S. city. Some 30,000 students will be affected, around 90% of them African-American. Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel has pushed for the closures. He says the city will save more than $500 billion, half of its deficit. Proponents also say the closures will hit schools that are both underperforming and underutilized. But a vocal coalition of parents, teachers, and students has fought back. At protests and public hearings, closure opponents have denounced the plan as discriminatory for overwhelmingly targeting African-American and Latino neighborhoods. They warn the closures will lead to overcrowded classrooms and endanger those students forced to walk longer distances to their new schools. Over the past several years, we've seen uh, the federal government and a lot of local governments saying that kids need smaller schools. And actually in New York City, for example, many schools have been broken up, big schools have been broken up 
into five or six schools, and many new small schools have been created. Uh, all of these schools could have served as the ideal small schools. There really was no reason to close them. Uh, other, it, and many people think it may have been paid back to the teachers' union for having struck last September. Uh, other cities that have closed schools have found no cost savings because the children still need services, the children still need teachers, uh, so that there are really no cost savings. Uh, this is, I think, uh, on Rahm Emanuel's part, he's following in the footsteps of his predecessor, Arne Duncan. Arne Duncan started this idea that the way to improve schools was to close them, which is obviously a ridiculous idea. Uh, but he closed three schools in 2002, and then two years later, he announced his reform plan, which he called Renaissance 2010. And the heart of Renaissance 2010 was to close schools and open new schools, and that would somehow miraculously improve education. Uh, not only did it not improve education in Chicago, and he, and he did close lots of schools and open many more. Uh, it did not improve education, but in this latest wave of school closings by Rahm Emanuel, the three schools that the first three schools that Arne Duncan closed uh, and reopened have now been closed again. We're seeing a repeat of this now with a lot of Republican governors attacking teachers and using kind of the pandemic as an excuse to double down on standardized tests and try to assert that teachers don't know how to teach reading, that they're, you know, we're falling down in our international rankings. If you look at NAEP scores or PISA scores, so there's a lot of similar rhetoric that's being revived. And that rhetoric really began in earnest during that period in the early 80s, mid 80s, um, with Reagan's administration, William Bennett in particular, using kind of the argument that test scores were demonstrative that schools were failing our students, that we were not competitive, that our young people were falling behind in reading and math and science compared to, you know, other superpowers and Europe in particular, and that was a consequence of teachers and teacher unions protecting people who weren't good at their jobs. You've taken a long, hard look at America's educational system and found that quality is lacking, but not because today's students are any less capable than their predecessors. You found that our educational system is in the grip of a crisis caused by low standards, lack of purpose, ineffective use of resources, and a failure to challenge students to push performance to the boundaries of individual ability, and that is to strive for excellence. So that narrative really takes hold. And Chicago, even though it's a blue city, that's really in name only. You, you've had a lot of conservative politicians over the years, the dailies especially, and there was a willingness to particularly after the 1987 teacher strike, which was a 19-day strike, to um, weaponize this rhetoric and go to the state legislature, kind of undermine some of the community-based structures that Harold Washington had supported and initiated uh, local school councils that saw a renaissance of improvements in terms of community engagement, student academic progress, and that was eclipsed by this powerful rhetoric emanating from D.C. Uh, around test scores being sort of the dominant way to measure and sort schools. And so that gets 
really embraced by Daley once he is elected mayor in 89 uh, and becomes the dominant school policy in Chicago. Once Daley gets in and the business community is fully in charge of his agenda, you know, he communicates and plans regularly with this civic committee of the Commercial Club of Chicago, which are the robber barons of our era. You know, they've actually been around since the 1890s. It used to be Marshall Field and Pullman, and now it's the Aon Insurance, United Airlines, Walgreens, McDonald's, all the corporate headquarters that are in Chicago dominate this organization and try to set policy on housing, schools, business, etc. And Daly takes his lead from them. And so once he's comfortably in office and we're in the early 90s and he's got a sufficiently dormant CTU union leadership that is collaborating with his administration, that's when he unleashes the boom, right? And so uh, you get Paul Vallis in, in the mid 90s who becomes the first CEO of the district. Pleasure to introduce the chief executive officer of Chicago Public Schools, Paul Vallis. Paul? Thank you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thank you. So it's no longer superintendent, so they're creating a business model to capture the public system and implement, you know, a cutthroat approach to ranking and sorting schools. Um, and one thing Vallis does almost immediately is begins to weaponize that Bennett rhetoric again, but now sort of aim directly at black educators. So it's the schools that have seen, you know, the most trauma, the least resources, the communities impacted the most by deindustrialization who are then blamed for the disinvestment in those school communities. And all of the schools that he puts into the reconstitution policy are dominated by black educators and black students, like no exceptions. Uh, and they all have to reapply for their jobs. And that includes security guards, lunch ladies, you know, clerks. So it's a really humiliating experience most of the people at Englewood get their jobs back because it turns out that, you know, many of them grew up in the community, have a deep knowledge of students and families, are committed beyond just what they view as the district's inequities and disrespect of their profession and their community. So they're not going to go away easily. When Englewood was at its height in, and had 3,000 students and a firmly black middle class student population and family base in the late 60s, just get your head around like what happens. You get rid of all the union jobs, you know, International Harvester, Zenith, Sunbeam Electronics, the Stockyards, Republican Wisconsin Steel vanish, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And that's when homicide rates skyrocket also in the community. That's when white flight, you know, is complete. That's when the black middle class leaves and abandons the area and so it becomes like a prison and it's actually a panopticon like when you go into Englewood the new high school not the old one you can see the building from any direction from the floor to kind of monitor 
what's going on with students and their movements. So everything is speaking to like this new carceral model and they make it worse, right? They, they take out the black educators. They, so Duncan, Arnie Duncan becomes CEO. On Friday, Education Secretary Arnie Duncan announced his resignation. Duncan became one of the longest serving education secretaries in history, advancing controversial policies like increasing standardized testing, expanding publicly run and often privately managed charter schools, and linking teacher pay to student test scores. When Duncan left Chicago and went to Washington, the first thing he did as Secretary of Education was fly to Detroit and tell that cash-strapped city that um, there would be an infusion of federal funds for education, but only if they followed the Chicago model. And it's really the Chicago model that Duncan has expanded um, as a national education agenda. Expansion of charter schools through the um, Race to the Top initiative, paying teachers based on student test scores, and in general, um, shifting education more and more towards business methods, business people in charge of education, um, creating more influence for corporate think tanks, neoliberal think tanks, venture philanthropies like the Gates Foundation and the Broad Foundation in the national education agenda. In 2004, the Commercial Club announces in a report known as Left Behind their plan to privatize 60 to 70 schools and close another 100. And they say that the CTU is the main barrier to progress. You know, they are explicit that the union is the problem. So it's really the first example of what will become the bipartisan consensus uh, that waiting for Superman embodies later on, you know, in, in the 2010s. You, you start to see Democrats and Republicans converging around this idea that school choice, portfolio districts, this idea that public schools that are in low-income communities of color, and really it's almost exclusively the Black community, are um, what Arne Duncan quotes as saying, a culture of failure without historical context, without acknowledging the economic devastation that's occurred, without appreciating the high levels of educated and very skilled black teachers that hold down and anchor those school communities. And the result is this just a massive reduction in the number of black educators. So over that 20 year period from 2000 to 2023 today, you see black educators were over 40% of the teachers in the district, and now it's under 20%. So you, you cut, you know, the number of black educators have been cut in half. You have the greatest school closings in American history in 2013 under Rahm. The Chicago Public Schools proposal would close 54 underutilized schools, forcing the relocation of approximately 30,000 students. The district says the move would save $560 million over the next decade. That only comes after, in 1999, you get the CHA plan for transformation that leads to the greatest elimination of public housing in the nation's history. So all of these things are connected. How do you really eliminate, displace, marginalize the poorest communities 
the ones who are most dependent on public sector jobs, on schools themselves as institutions to maintain connection and support. And you, you undermine that, you undermine housing that's affordable. And you know, you just really have destroyed the foundation. And that allows for, you know, the business community to like reshape all these neighborhoods. During the school closures, it became very obvious that these schools that are being destabilized are within black and brown communities. You know, having worked closely as an organizer in North Lawndale to meet black parents who were willing to get on a bus at eight o'clock at night to drive downtown to fight on behalf of their, their schools. These are experiences that, that I will never forget. But what it did was it challenged me that if this struggle and this fight does not have a moral consciousness about the obvious racism, we do not have a fight, ladies and gentlemen. And so, you know, the school actions happen. It's finally, you know, just kind of pressing on me a little bit. I emailed the leadership about our intentions. 95% of the teachers who came to that first meeting and then the meetings after that, all of them had double master's degrees, type 75s, doctorate degrees. And all I kept thinking about was, these teachers may not have a job next year. And, and, and that's when it became very much real. You know, Chicago is a pilot for what they then unleash nationally. Rahm Emanuel's elected, you know, arguably the most powerful politician in America, and he's riding the coattails of Obama, the most popular politician in America, and certainly in Chicago. So there's a lot of forces stacked against us. We now confirmed with sources close to Rahm Emanuel that he's going to officially step down as White House Chief of Staff on Friday. Uh, then he is going to take some time to get here to Chicago over the weekend and basically begin his campaign for mayor in earnest. Thank you, Chicago for this humbling victory. All I can say, you sure know how to make a guy feel at home. And yet, you know, he makes the mistake of assuming that means we're vanquished and that there's no way we could pull ourselves together and develop the kind of solidarity organization and popular mandate to resist. And so, he unilaterally attempts to expand the school day by 20% without paying people, just like by decree. Extending the school day in the school year has not been popular with the teachers union, <laughs> uh, to, to put it mildly. The teachers union president, Karen Lewis, has called you dirty, low down, and more. Uh, you should hear what my wife says about me. <laughs> I mean, it, this is an issue in a lot of cities. Bottom line, are the teachers unions friends or foe. You talk to the teachers, so I'll go whisper to you. It's the right thing to do. They know you can't do math on 40 hours, 40 minutes a day, only three days a week. You can't teach a kid to read on that level. And to me, the system's stacked again. So now, I don't want to fight about it. That should be over. Let's have a real healthy discussion about how to use it. Because at the end of the day, the school system is neither about me as a mayor or you as an elected leader of a union. It's about the kid we're serving. And on the shortest school day and shortest school year, they're getting shortchanged. And I remember going to schools 
and it was on the front page of the Chicago Sun-Times where Rahm Emanuel says, teachers got a raise, schools get the shaft, or children get the shaft, you know, like crude, the way he's known to talk. And I go into schools and people are like waving this headline and crying, you know, like just weeping, like, how could he say this about us? And so people's consciousness starts to shift instead of this desperation, it's replaced with confidence, with clarity, with being able to kind of see themselves with others in similar situations instead of alone in their classrooms, connecting with the broader community. And we start kind of also giving people the visual, wear red on Fridays, you know, let's do some parent outreach and flyer and let's go downtown and you know, rally against the big banks that are actually supporting the attacks on schools and the school closings and connect the dots for people. Let's show how charter expansion has led to school closings and, you know, really give the public a full picture of what the consequences are of privatization. As we're doing that, that builds the continual strength of our membership as they see themselves part of this bigger community and then, you know, both figuratively and literally, right? They're doing it in their own schools and then they're going to citywide events and then we're doing a big rally and then they see thousands of people in red shirts. And by then, you know, we know we can beat them. It is a union that became a movement under the leadership of the late Karen Lewis. For the past decade, the Chicago Teachers Union has gained power, pushing an agenda that focuses on social justice issues outside the classroom. She said they didn't listen when we marched across this city. They didn't listen when we had a hunger strike. They didn't listen when we barricaded ourselves in schools. They did not listen for Chicago tonight. Chicago chose one of CTU's own. The election of Brandon Johnson, a former Chicago public schools teacher and paid CTU organizer, is the culmination of a movement to elect people who will champion the union's cause. Johnson insists he's not beholden to CTU, but he believes people voted for him because of the social injustice issues the union supports. I am uniting the city around a set of values that the people of Chicago obviously want. Lori came in and she, you know, campaigned on a very progressive ticket and progressive platform. And she really won, well, literally won all 50 wards <laughs> over, <laughs> you know. The entire city of Chicago was like, yes, we want Lori. And she didn't keep any of those promises. Totally flipped the script when she got into office and for me, that was what was most important to just make sure that my neighbors, my community members are aware of the broken promises and what possibilities and what hope having a mayor who was boots on the ground. That's the foundation of Brandon Johnson's work and service, you know, to the community and to the people is boots on the ground working class individuals, the most vulnerable populations. And I wanted to convey that, like he is not just another politician or elected official, you know, so the policies that he has fought for and supported um, in his role as county board commissioner, Cook County board commissioner are transformational. And he's gonna carry that to the fifth floor
But most importantly, he has a movement behind him that will hold him accountable. We are very proud to have some representation for the first time in more than, I want to say, 90 years, representation on the fifth floor in city council from the west side. That is very rare. Not only will this west sider be, you know, advocating for all of Chicago, but he he has no choice but to take that west side lived experience that Chicago lived experience of living in, you know, historically disinvested uh, neighborhoods, living in a neighborhood where three blocks from where he lives is one of the schools that Rum shut down. And that school was sold to a classical Christian school from outside of the city. For me and my neighbors here on the west side of Chicago, I think it's important that we, not only because Brandon isn't the savior, he isn't the end all be all, but he is an example of what's possible. An example of a movement, people powered movement coming together to say we demand change and we want it now. I think when we're thinking about electoral organizing and thinking about the candidates, like to me, it's not which candidate is the most charismatic or the best speaker. To me, it's like which candidate is really going to center community, is going to like work in community and co-govern with us to push policies that are going to help us. And as an organizer, issue-based organizing, I think is very essential and the reason why Brandon won. Because community members weren't just hearing and like didn't care about more police. Yes, there was like some like, we need more police. Yes, but majority of Chicagoans, if you look at the exit interviews from like those that voted, cared about public safety, but most importantly, were moved by Brandon's response and support to treatment, not trauma, and his support to reopen the closed public mental health clinics and his support to like alternatives to policing because folks understand through the organizing work that we have done and the political education that police are not the answer and they have not been the answer. Mayor Brandon Johnson is vowing a different approach to mental health care than his two predecessors. He says he will reopen six publicly run mental health clinics that closed more than a decade ago. And here he is at his inauguration yesterday. So let's bring together the private sector, the public sector, the county, the state and the federal government to find the best solutions for delivering these services, including reopening our mental health care centers across the city of Chicago. But the only way that we can truly confront and address those challenges is by working together and coming together. Now, we can't do it in a phony way, in an artificial way that pretends that differences don't, don't exist. But I'm talking about in a deeper way, a deeper way that acknowledges the strength of what makes this city so strong and great. And Brandon was offering something different that centered community and centered the needs of people. 
And particularly when thinking about his stance on education, I worked closely with Brandon on a lot of these issues. I worked with him to pass an elected representative school board. We worked with him to push for sustainable community schools, which would include like fully funded schools, programming for not only like young people in the schools, but also for parents and really making sure that our schools are community hubs and are safe places for folks. And for housing, he supports the ordinance, Bring Chicago Home, which would be an ordinance that would tax rich and help fund accessible housing for those that are houseless. For immigration, he has been a like supporter and has stood with us when calling against systems and tools of surveillance, like the gang database that harmed undocumented people in Chicago and turned them over to ICE. So I feel like he has been with us in the fights and understood the issues, which also made it a lot easier when pushing him on the on them and asking him to adopt it as his policy platform. And what I felt was really important was him going to movement and consulting with us on the way that he presented some of these policy issues, like what are some red flags? But it also doesn't mean that we're not going to hold him accountable now that he's in office. It's like, yes, and we still have a lot of work to do. And we know that it was really hard to get to this point and people don't want us to be in power. And it's going to be really hard to push back against these systems we're not that familiar with because we haven't gotten this close to them before. Brandon is a natural organizer. He brings those instincts and communication skills as an educator who's deeply committed to equity and racial justice into the CTU with him already, and then is able to learn the scientific skills of organizing. How do you draw out people's issues? How do you address their concerns and hesitation to take action? How do you help them establish a vision? How do you clarify who's responsible? And then what are the commitments necessary to change the situation? So it's a, it's a very structured methodology. Brandon gets that under his belt and then is seeing all of these school communities attacked is bringing those skills in to help them, you know, fight back against those attacks, is helping people organize their own efforts to do that, going to hearings, building political awareness, connecting the dots. You know, so what was gonna be 125 schools closed is 50. It's still a horrible stain on Chicago's past. And, um, you know, as an attack, we're still trying to recover from, but it becomes an awakening. Brandon is seeing all of that in real time and helping to build that movement and knows that unless we figure out a way to really capture the political establishment and transform it, we're going to be right back here again at some point in the near future. Like that this is sort of the design that they want to implement and that the Democrats will go along with it unless we're building our own capacity to run our own candidates 
with a different platform and vision connected to this coalition of forces that have come together on this question. We formed the United Working Families, friends intimately involved with that formation. Um, he's seeing Carlos Rosa get elected as one of the first candidates. You know, we have more socialist candidates in Chicago than we've had in a hundred years. That That's like the initial effort to try and challenge some of the people who went along to get along on the closings and the privatization train. And we take them out, you know, and we kind of practice to replicate those structures in communities and apply it to, you know, political work. And so there's a merging of all of those spheres, you know, the unification of all that work and the culmination of all that work is Brandon being elected as mayor. Well, there you have it. Pretty wild story to go from public school teacher and union organizer to City Hall in an 11-year span is truly inspiring and should be an example for us all about how you can use movements to create change wherever you live. Once again, I'm Manny Faces, and on behalf of the Newsbeat team, thank you for listening. As a reminder, I know, I know, here he goes again. Please make sure you subscribe to Newsbeat on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Leave a rating and review. We love to see those. And head on over to newsbeat.substack.com to get more in-depth coverage of this and every episode. It's also where we sometimes drop bonus content, including some stories we may not actually cover on the pod. So it's a good subscription, newsbeat.substack.com. And again, it's free. We want to once again thanks Andrea Ortiz, Crystal Gardner, and Jackson Potter for giving us an inside look into this grassroots campaign and for adding critical context about Chicago politics and the city's labor movement. For more information on each of our guests, check our substack accompanying the episode. You'll find all the links you need in the show notes. Once again, we appreciate every single one of you for listening. Until next time, peace and love to you and yours. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy, Prophet of Rage. And this is News Beat. This is a Many Faces Media production. Many Faces! You sick for this one. Sick.